Chapter 7 of A History of American Political Theories by Charles Edward Merriam. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Political Theory in Relation to the Nature of the Union The question of national organization is the most difficult problem that the United States has yet been called upon to solve. Possessing all the characteristics commonly attributed to nations, common race, language, religion, geographical unity, the full expression of this nationality met with stubborn resistance and was realized only after the bloodiest war of the century had been fought. Even in colonial days, there was evident the strongest reluctance to form any union at all binding in nature. During the enthusiasm of the revolutionary movement, a decidedly national attitude was assumed, but in the Articles of Confederation this was abandoned. In the formation and adoption of the Constitution, there was a reaction in which the national spirit was conspicuous. From the very first days of the Republic, however, there was marked divergence of opinion in regard to the nature of the new Union. The Eleventh Amendment, the Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions, the Hartford Convention, nullification, all were evidences of the general difference of opinion as to the character of the Federal Union. With the rise of slavery to the position of a national issue, the defenders of this institution made states' rights a part of their platform. Thus, the unnational doctrine was associated with a particular section of the country and with the life of a particular institution. It had a local habitation and a name. The conflict accordingly became more and more desperate until the final appeal was taken to the arbitrament of arms. The purpose of this chapter is to describe and analyze the political theory underlying the various doctrines as to the nature of the Union developed during this period. The compromise theory prevalent at the time of the adoption of the Constitution, the state's right theory developed by Calhoun, and the nationalist doctrine in the legal form given it by Webster, and in the more scientific shape later assumed, form the large groups under which these doctrines may be classified and discussed. The question as to the nature of the American Union was an important one, theoretically and practically, in the days when the Constitution was pending. The new government evolved, it was seen, a closer union than that under the old Confederation, and yet it was not desired to form a centralized state, a consolidated republic. The Confederation was too closely allied to anarchy. A centralized state, it was feared, would be equivalent to tyranny. This difficulty was discussed by the Federalists and was explained with such consummate skill as to constitute a satisfactory solution for the political problem then immediate and pressing. The United States was the first type of modern Bundesstaat, and the Federalist was breaking new ground. Nevertheless, the theory then developed profoundly influenced the thought of America, and also at a later date, that of continental countries. The new Union was variously termed a compound republic, a confederate republic, and a confederacy, an assemblage of societies, or an association of two or more states into one state. The extent, modification, and objects of the federal authority, it was explained, are mere matters of discretion, so long as the separate organization of the members be not abolished, so long as it exists by constitutional necessity for local purposes, though it be in perfect subordination to the general authority of the Union, it would still be in fact and in theory an association of states or a confederacy. The nature of the new Union it was held is neither wholly national nor wholly federal, but contains both national and federal elements in combination. Considering the foundation of the government, it is federal, since the Constitution must be ratified by the several states. In regard to the organization of the legislative power, the new Union is partly national and partly federal, one house resting on a national and the other on a federal basis. The executive is also constituted in a mixed federal and national way, since the electoral vote is distributed partly in accordance with the principle of state equality and partly according to population. Viewing the operation of the government, it is seen to be national and not federal, inasmuch as it acts directly on individuals and not through the states. 
In the extent of its powers, however, the Union is federal because its jurisdiction is limited to specific objects and all else is left to the states. Lastly, as respects the amending power, it is found that the government is partly federal and partly national, since neither the principle of unanimity nor that of proportionality obtains exclusively. It thus appears that the government as organized in the Constitution must be regarded neither as a pure confederacy nor yet as a consolidated republic, but should really be placed in a class by itself. It is a new type of government peculiar to American conditions, a form at once national and federal, happily combining the characteristics of both. In harmony with this idea of the mixed character of the Union was the theory that sovereignty is capable of division and actually is divided in the United States. This doctrine was current at the time when the Constitution was adopted, was generally accepted until the days of Calhoun, and still remains the theory of the federal courts. In the letter of the Constitutional Convention to Congress, it was expressly declared that all rights of independent sovereignty could not be secured to the states under a system of federal government. In the Federalist also, the division of sovereign power was frequently suggested. Thus it was said that the old Confederation attempted to accomplish impossibilities, to reconcile a partial sovereignty in the Union with complete sovereignty in the states, to subvert a mathematical axiom by taking away a part and letting the whole remain. It was shown that in Rome the legislative power in the last resort resided for ages in two different bodies which were distinct and independent, that is, the patricians and the plebeians. It was asserted that the new constitution does not reduce the states to the rank of provinces, but leaves them in possession of certain exclusive and very important portions of sovereign power. The states will still hold all the rights of sovereignty, which were not by that act exclusively delegated to the United States. In a consolidated system, the local authorities are wholly subject to the central government, but in the proposed union, the local authorities form distinct and independent portions of the supremacy, no more subject to the general authority than the general authority is to them within its own sphere. The states may not be fully sovereign, but they have at least a residuary sovereignty. There are, in fact, many sovereignties existing side by side. The real sovereignty rests, however, not with the state or federal government, but with the people. The ultimate authority, it is said, wherever the derivative may be found, resides in the people alone. But who the people were, whether of the several states or of all the states taken collectively, the Federalist was careful not to answer. This was a question left for coming generations. It is a fair conclusion, then, that at the time when the Constitution was adopted, the prevalent opinion was that in some way or other sovereignty was being divided between the states and the Union. It is a mistake to suppose that the states thought they were renouncing all of their sovereignty, or that they thought they were giving up none of it. There were, of course, some who believed in one or the other of the two ideas, but in general, it was thought that a compromise was being made between states and Union, and that a division of sovereignty was involved in this. If the question were ever raised as to where the ultimate controlling power in the community is located, the answer was with the people, without particular inquiry as to just what was meant by this. In the revolutionary days, people had stood for the opposition to the king, and this old idea was used to conceal the difficulty involved in a wholly different situation. This idea of the divisibility of sovereignty was early enunciated by the United States courts, notably in the case of Chisholm versus Georgia, 1792. The declaration was made that the United States are sovereign as to all powers of government actually surrendered. Each state in the Union is sovereign as to all the powers reserved. Succeeding decisions gave expression to the same theory that sovereignty is capable of division and actually has been divided under the American system. The opinions of the courts were permeated with the idea of the division of sovereign powers between the states and the Union. One of the staunchest champions of the theory of divided sovereignty was James Madison. 
He maintained that the American government was neither federal nor national. It was sui generi, federal republican, unique in the nature of its construction, a nondescript to be tested and explained by itself alone, an illustration of the adaptability of republican institutions to new and difficult conditions. To his mind, nothing was clearer than the proposition that sovereignty may be divided. If it cannot, he urged, then the political system of the United States is a chimera, mocking the vain pretensions of human wisdom. Or again, it is difficult to argue intelligibly concerning the compound system of government in the United States without admitting the divisibility of sovereignty. In this case, it is necessary to abandon abstract and technical modes of expounding and designating its character, and regard the Constitution as a system hitherto without a model. He found that the sovereignty was divided between the states on the one hand and the union on the other, so that the whole society, as he said, consists in a number of partial sovereignties. Moreover, he charged that the main pillar of nullification was the assumption that sovereignty is a unit at once indivisible and inalienable. Up to the time when the theory of Calhoun became influential, the characteristic American doctrine was that in the United States, whatever might elsewhere obtain, the sovereignty had been divided into several portions without the destruction of its life principle. Replying to Calhoun's argument for unqualified state sovereignty, Senator Reeves of Virginia, himself a states' rights man of the old school, said in 1833, Sir, this is a novelty unknown to the founders of the Constitution, and has sprung up in a hotbed of local politics. At the period of the adoption of the Constitution, it was distinctly made known and understood that to the extent to which sovereignty was vested in the Union, that of states was relinquished and diminished. If the idea of a double sovereignty seemed to be without adequate historical precedent, so was the whole American system without parallel. As democracy seemed impossible until put in practice in America, so with the division of sovereignty. The fact that such a condition was not elsewhere to be found did not constitute an argument against its acceptance, but was rather a testimony to the peculiar adaptability of Republican institutions. As has already been indicated, the progress of this idea was facilitated by the prevalence of the theory of popular as opposed to governmental sovereignty, and by the general belief that the new world had really little to do with the old world conception of government in general, or of sovereignty in particular. The wide acceptance of this idea throughout the United States made it for a long time possible to quiet the contention between the states and the Union by referring them to the authority above both, namely the people. When the contest between nationalism and particularism entered the acute stage, however, this doctrine became less easy to maintain. The difficulty long concealed behind the complicated governmental machinery and the ambiguous term people became evident. The compromise doctrine was rejected by both North and South, and the battle fought out between the sovereignty of the states and that of the Union. It should not escape notice, however, that Joseph's story early distinguished two uses of the term sovereignty in such a way as to obviate the difficulties inherent in the idea of double supremacy. He observed that by sovereignty in its largest sense is meant supreme, absolute, uncontrollable power, the jus summi imperi, the absolute right to govern. But the term he showed is also used in another and more limited sense, signifying such political powers as in the actual organization of the particular state or nation are to be exclusively exercised by certain public functionaries without the control of any superior authority. In this sense, he continues, the sovereignty may be of a very limited nature. It may extend to a few or many objects, and it may be unlimited as to some, it may be restrained as to others. In this use of the term, sovereignty is not the ultimate political power, but that which under the given form of organization is exercised without the control of superior authority. From this point of view, it is easy to regard sovereignty as theoretically divisible and as actually divided between the states and the union, understanding that the absolute right to govern still remains in its original unity and integrity. Sovereignty in the limited sense is divided, in the broader sense it remains one. 
In this connection, attention should be called to an application of the social contract theory to the nature of the union. This doctrine of contract was capable of different application, but in the hands of Madison and others was employed to combat the theories of the extreme states' rights party. It was conceded that the union was formed by an agreement to which states and not individuals were the parties, but the binding force of the contract was emphasized in the very strongest way. The fact that the union rests on a contract, it was said, should not be made an excuse for abandoning it at will. On the contrary, the very fact that it is a contract entitles it to the highest respect. It is, said Madison, the nature and essence of a compact, that it is equally obligatory on the parties to it, and, of course, that no one of them can be liberated therefrom without the consent of the others, or such a violation of abuse of it by the others as will amount to dissolution of the compact. The states, then, may in extreme case exercise their revolutionary right, but they cannot legally dissolve the union at pleasure. They are bound as states by virtue of the contract. Of this nature was the theory of the union proclaimed by Jackson in his message of 1833 on the nullification question. His position was that, without inquiring closely into the exact form of the national contract, it is sufficient that it must be admitted to be a compact and to possess the obligations incident to a compact. The parties to the agreement cannot dissolve the association without acknowledging the correlative right in the remainder to decide whether that dissolution can be permitted consistently with the general happiness. Owing to the wide prevalence of the social contract theory in America, this appeal to the binding force of a contract was an exceedingly effective argument to use. It was an easy step from the doctrine that governments derive their powers from the consent of the governed to the idea that if the states had consented or contracted to form a government, they were bound by that agreement. The more strongly it was believed that the only legitimate basis of government was consent, the greater was the emphasis placed on the obligation of a contract or agreement, whether between states or individuals. And just as it was thought that the social contract must not be interpreted by any one citizen, but by majority, so it was reasoned that the agreement between the states should be interpreted by the majority and not by any one of them at pleasure. The one-sided repudiation of a contract voluntarily entered into was, according to this theory, wholly unreasonable and contrary to the analogy both of private law and of the social contract on which society rests. By this line of reasoning, the conclusion was reached that the Union, although created by the voluntary act of the states as states, was not an association from which a state could depart at pleasure without consulting its fellow states. None of these compromise ideas, however, offered a satisfactory solution of the problem. In the course of a generation after the Constitution was adopted, they were supplanted by well-defined doctrines of state sovereignty on the one hand and national supremacy on the other. The conflict between nationalism and particularism, intensified by the agitation over the slavery question, passed out of the realm of compromise. Rigid dogmas were framed upon either side, their validity stubbornly asserted, and the conclusion found in the field of armed conflict. Definite form was first given to the particularistic theory. The feeling of state sovereignty, strong from the first, had been aroused to vigorous protests by the summons issued against the state of Georgia, from which resulted the 11th Amendment, by the Alien and Sedition Laws, again by the war with England, by the Tariff of 1832, finally by the fear that the Union and slavery were incompatible. The outgrowth of the sentiment was the doctrine of nullification and secession. To the political philosophy underlying these ideas, attention must now be given. In its earliest form, the states' rights idea was based on the current theory of the social contract. Analogies were drawn between the social contract and the federal contract. The formation of the union by the states was compared to that of a state by the individuals. Reference was made to the natural rights of states, and it was suggested that the states, like individuals, might abandon the association of which they were members if abused or oppressed. This analogy between social and federal contract was implied in the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. 
The doctrine was exploited by the Virginia jurist H. St. George Tucker in his Commentaries on Blackstone, 1803. The states, said Tucker, are united in a confederacy but still remain independent and sovereign. Each is still a sovereign state, still capable, should the occasion require, of resuming the exercise of its functions to the full extent. Whenever the common government becomes subversive of the rights of any state, it may secede as the state seceded from the old confederation. This is a natural right of which no force or compact can deprive the people of any state whenever they see the necessity and possess the power to do it. The state has the same right to withdraw from or overthrow the federal government as the individual has, under the Declaration of Independence, to overthrow any political system which has become oppressive. But this, it will be observed, gave the states only a revolutionary right of resistance or secession, and it also involved the recognition of the social contract. Both of these ideas were repudiated by the later defenders of the cause of the states. The finally accepted statement of states' rights doctrine was made by the great political philosopher of the South, John C. Calhoun. The work in which his ideas are most systematically expressed is a disquisition on government accompanied by a discourse on the constitution and government of the united states one of the ablest treatises on political theory that appeared in the first half of the last century this taken in connection with the numerous public utterances of calhoun affords a basis for the study of his political philosophy an analysis will first be made of his theory of nullification and then of the doctrine of secession with which he is associated. The inquiry is directed in the first place then to the general attitude of Calhoun toward the fundamental question of the origin of the political society. Calhoun condemned in no uncertain terms the time-honored hypothesis of a pre-civil state of nature and the origin of government by means of a contract. This had been the theory of the revolutionists in the 17th and 18th centuries and continued to be the prevailing American doctrine even in the 19th. In fact, this hypothesis of an original state of nature and the contractual character of government had been one of the leading principles of the fathers. The theory of contract had even been extended from individuals to the relations between the states. It is recognized in many of the state constitutions, adopted by men of all parties, aristocrats as well as democrats, and was generally accepted as the correct theory of the origin of political institutions. In the politics of Calhoun, however, there was no place for the assumptions of the naturecht philosophy and he had no sympathy with this interpretation of the nature of government. This state of nature he regarded as a mere fiction, an unwarrantable hypothesis. Instead of being the natural state of man, it is of all conceivable states the most opposed to his nature, most repugnant to his feelings, and most incompatible with his wants. His natural state is the social and political. Government is not artificial and unnatural, but perfectly natural in the sense that it is necessary to the development and perfection of human powers. Government is not a matter of choice, depending for its origin and continuance on the caprice of the individual. On the contrary, it is a primary necessity of man, and like breathing, it is not permitted to depend on our volition. There are, reasons Calhoun, two fundamental elements in the constitution of man, one the selfish, the other the social instinct or tendency. Of these two, however, the stronger is the selfish tendency, and as a consequence, there arises conflict between individuals which must be in some way controlled. The instrument by means of which this control is effected is government, a necessity arising out of the essential nature of man. Society is necessary to man, government is necessary to society, but government itself contains a germ of evil and must in turn be controlled or balanced. To this end is erected a constitution intended to hold in check the destructive tendencies found in government. This constitution bears the same relation to government that government bears to society. As government restrains the selfish tendencies of the individual, so the constitution checks the selfish tendencies of the government. There is this difference to be noted, however, that government is of divine origin, whereas the constitution is a human device and construction. There must be a government. There may be a constitution. 
The organization of the Constitution Calhoun regards as one of the greatest of political problems. How can the government be given the powers necessary and yet be restrained from oppressing the members of the society? Calhoun's answer to this perennial problem is that there must be created an organism by which resistance may be systematically and peaceably made on the part of the ruled to oppression and abuse of power on the part of the rulers. This result may be affected by establishing the responsibility of the rulers to the ruled through the exercise of the right of suffrage, the primary principle in the establishment of constitutional government. Yet this alone is inadequate to afford the necessary protection. It only changes the seat of authority without counteracting in the least the tendency of the government to oppression and abuse of its powers. We are still confronted by the imminent danger that the majority of the electors will prove to be tyrannical and oppress the weaker minority as intolerably as the most irresponsible government. Calhoun enters, therefore, on a vigorous polemic against the despotism of the majority. He asserts that the tendency of the majority is to assume all the rights belonging to the people. Although only a fraction, they assume to be and act as the whole people, while on the other hand, the minority is treated as if it were nothing at all. Again, Calhoun points out the probability that great political parties will arise, that their organization will become increasingly centralized, and that continually stricter party discipline will prevail. Offices will come to be regarded as a legitimate reward of the victorious party, while recognition of other than partisans will be excluded. Party strife will become fiercer and fiercer as it becomes more factional, and will finally result in an appeal to force and the establishment of absolute government. Nor is there any way by which this inherent tendency may be effectively restrained. It may be urged that a sufficient check is found in the power of public opinion to keep party spirit within reasonable limits, but to this Calhoun is not ready to assent. He concedes the great strength of public sentiment, particularly that of modern times in its highly developed form, but does not consider it even yet as an effective barrier against the tendencies of the majority. Public opinion itself may be just as despotic as the majority party, just as radical and unreasonable, and consequently just as uncertain a defender of the rights of the minority. Nor are constitutional restrictions or the separation of powers of sufficient force against the majority. All restrictions must be interpreted, all requirements carried out by the prevailing party, and minority is helpless and must submit to any adjustment of constitutional balances that may commend itself to the majority. The tyranny of the majority is then one of the fundamental propositions in the theory of Calhoun. Majority rule is always liable to abuse at the hands of a party, an interest, or a section which interprets constitutional law, determines public opinion, arrogates to itself the right and privilege properly belonging only to the whole people. With dramatic power, Calhoun pictures the inevitable advance of majority encroachment and aggression. Application of this principle is made in reference to the question of taxation. Under the operation of the numerical majority, says Calhoun, a party or section obtaining power may easily abuse and oppress another section found in the minority. Taxes may be levied by the majority section, which burden chiefly the minority section. Not only this, but these taxes are actually returned by the minority to the majority, virtually bounties paid by the weaker to the stronger party. The case in point was that of the protective tariff, which he considered was levied for the benefit of the North at the expense of the South. It seemed to him, therefore, an excellent illustration of the majority tyranny upon which so much emphasis had been laid. In place of the dangerous numerical majority, Calhoun presents his doctrine of the concurrent majority. All constitutional governments, says Calhoun, take the sense of the community by its parts and each through its appropriate organ. On the other hand, those governments in which power is centered in an individual or a body of individuals, even including the majority, may be regarded as absolute governments. The principle upon which they rest is, in the last analysis, force, in contrast to the principle of constitutional governments, which is that of compromise. 
Under the concurrent or constitutional majority system, this principle of compromise will be made effective by giving each interest or portion of the community a negative on the others. Without a concurrent majority, there can be no negative. Without a negative, there can be no constitution. Calhoun declares that it is the negative power, the power of preventing or arresting the action of the government, be it called by what term it may, veto, interposition, nullification, check, or balance of power, which in fact forms the Constitution. The positive power makes the government, but the negative power makes the Constitution. The essence of the concurrent majority is then the veto power granted to the various separate interests. Governmental action is conditioned not upon the consent of a majority of individuals, but upon that of various interests. The advantages of such a system are presented with great enthusiasm. With a concurrent majority, there will be a greater degree of attachment to the state than is otherwise possible. Attention will be attracted not so much to party as to country. The government will not discriminate against any one interest or group, and hence there will be no violent resentments and animosities provoked as under the rule of the absolute majority. Consequently, there will result a higher development of common devotion, Politically and morally, there must follow, according to Calhoun, loftier standards of conduct under this regime of compromise and under that of force. Moreover, under this system, there may be obtained a higher degree of liberty. Government will be effectually restrained from arbitrary and oppressive conduct by the veto power of the various interests, and thus political freedom will be guaranteed. In any other government, indeed, liberty can be little more than a name. The constitutional majority alone makes it a reality. By the same logic, civilization and progress are fostered by the system of compromise, for under it are secured liberty and harmony, two great factors in civilized development. On the whole, Calhoun would conclude that the organism known as the concurrent or constitutional majority is eminently adapted to realize the great ends of government, included under the protection and perfection of society. Two objections may be raised against the proposed system Calhoun concedes, namely its complexity and its ineffectiveness. To the first of these, he replies that the simplest of all governments are absolute, and that all free governments are of necessity complex in their structure. Hence, this style of argument applies to the whole philosophy and practice of free governments, which he does not consider it necessary to defend. Nor is the objection to the effectiveness of the proposed system regarded as serious. Calhoun maintains that in times of real stress, the compromise principle is not unfavorable to the passage of necessary measures, and that any policy agreed upon is far more enthusiastically supported than if compelled by force. Obedience will be rendered not from a selfish or sectional motive, but from a higher sense of obligation to country. An analogy to the compromise principle is discovered in the unanimity required of a jury before decisive action can be taken. As circumstances lead the jurors to a unanimous decision, so the far more imperious necessities of government will lead to a compromise and agreement in the affairs of state. Historical illustrations of the compromise afforded by the experience of Poland with the Liberum veto, by the Confederacy of the Six Nations, the Patricians and Plebeians in Rome, the Lords and Commons in England, and by the United States, if the original intention of the Fathers were carried out. It is now evident that Calhoun's argument all leads up to the defense of a particular theory of public law in the United States, concurrent or constitutional majority, simply the prolegomena to nullification. The individual states of the Union are to enjoy a veto on the proceedings of the general government, thus establishing the principle of action through the concurrent instead of the numerical majority. A state may reject any measure of the general government regarded as inconsistent with the terms of the Constitution, may, in other words, nullify the proposed action of the federal government. If three-fourths of the state support the action of the government, the nullifying state must either yield or withdraw from the Union. Thus, the constitutional means of defense is possessed by each state. There is no possibility of tyrannical conduct on the part of the numerical majority, and the action of the concurrent majority is assured. 
Nullification in Calhoun's eyes was not only a theory of the relation of the states to the Union, but it was a theory of constitutional government in general, founded not merely in the particular system of the United States, but equally essential in the framework of any free constitution. In South Carolina, for example, he points out, representation in the legislature is distributed on the basis of property, population, and territory. Representation in the Senate is based on election districts and thus gives to the southern part of the state the predominance in that body. The House is based on property and population, thus giving the northern part of the state the majority there. As the governor, the judges, and all important officers are elected by the legislature, there is established an equilibrium between the sections. Party organization, says Calhoun, party discipline, party prescription, and their offspring, the spoils principle, have been unknown to the state. The same principle and similar methods might well be introduced, he thinks, into other states, and there be followed by like beneficent results. As already stated, nullification as conceived by Calhoun was not simply a theory of the American Union, but a fundamental doctrine of free government. Whether the political theory of nullification was chronologically or only logically antecedent to the constitutional theory of nullification is a matter which need not here be discussed. The important fact is that in the developed thought of Calhoun, the concurrent majority was declared to be a vital element in constitutional government. The next object of inquiry is Calhoun's statement of the doctrine of secession. The germ of this theory is found in Calhoun's conception of the nature of sovereignty. In the early years of the Republic, it had been generally believed that in the United States there existed a divided sovereignty. The states were sovereign in certain matters, the national government sovereign in certain others, and each was supreme in its proper sphere. If any ultimate sovereign was thought of, it was the people as contrasted with the government. Calhoun, however, was wholly intolerant of any theory of divided sovereignty. To him, this was logically impossible and contradictory. He reasoned that in its very nature, sovereignty must be indivisible. To divide it is to destroy it. Sovereignty must be one, or it is not at all. There can be no state partly sovereign and partly non-sovereign. There can be no association composed of half-sovereign states on the one hand and a half-sovereign government on the other. The vital principle of the state, its life, and spirit cannot be sundered. It must remain one and indivisible. Thus, in Calhoun's doctrine, all compromise was rejected, and the doctrine of the indivisibility of sovereignty presented in its clearest and most striking light. Applying this argument to the nature of the Union, Calhoun asserted that the states were originally sovereign, and that they had never yielded up their sovereignty. They could not surrender a part and retain another part, but they must either have given up all or have retained all. The states must be fully sovereign or fully subject. This was the alternative which Calhoun urged with relentless logic. Given the original sovereignty of the states and the indivisibility of sovereignty, either the states must be sovereign communities and the United States a mere agent, or the United States must be sovereign and the states wholly subordinate. In Calhoun's theory, there was no opportunity given for a division of the field between the states and the Union. Such a compromise was excluded. It is true, he concedes, that the central government enjoys the right to exercise sovereign powers, but it does not have the true sovereignty from which these powers are only emanations. The central government acts as a sovereign, but it is not a sovereign. It wears the robes of authority only by sufferance of the legitimate owner, the states. To the central government, there are delegated by the state certain attributes of sovereignty, such as the war power, the taxing power, the power to coin money, but these powers do not constitute sovereignty. In Calhoun's theory, these attributes of sovereignty may be divided, and the supreme authority itself remain unimpaired. Thus, the states do not surrender to sovereignty. They merely forego the exercise of certain of its attributes, and these are all liable to recall in any moment by the state from which derived. In fact, neither federal nor state government is supreme, for there is a determining power back of both. 
One must distinguish, he maintains, between the constitution-making power and the law-making power. The former alone is sovereign, and to its act is due the formation and organization of the government. The constituent power in any state concedes both to the state government and to the national government certain powers or attributes of sovereignty. But as it may recall the power granted to the state government, so with equal right, it may recall the authority delegated to the central government. Throughout this process, the sovereign power remains intact. The practical conclusion which he draws is naturally that the states may at any time rightfully assert their sovereign prerogative and withdraw from the Union. It is further important to notice how, on Calhoun's basis, he differentiated the United States from a league or confederacy. What line of demarcation could he draw between the political organization under the Articles of Confederation and that affected under the Constitution? Calhoun declared that the main difference between these two types of association consisted in the fact that the Confederacy lacked one essential feature of the Republic, namely a fixed and stable government. The so-called government of a confederacy is nearly allied to an assembly of diplomats meeting to determine certain policies and then leaving their execution largely to the several parties to the agreement. Our system is the first that ever substituted a government in lieu of such bodies. This, in fact, constitutes its peculiar characteristic. It is new, peculiar, and unprecedented. Among the changes involved in the passage from confederacy to republic was in the first place a change in the source from which power was derived. The confederacy obtained its authority from the state governments, the republic from the sovereign communities themselves. The confederacy was a mere league between governments, the republic is a more perfect union between sovereign communities. Another point of difference is that, in the republic, there is needed a much more careful specification and enumeration of powers than was required in the confederacy where the states themselves were immediately concerned in their administration. Furthermore, under the Confederacy, the state governments were superior to the central government, which was merely their agent, but in the Republic, the federal and the state governments are equals in coordinates. Both are inferior in rank to the constitutional convention of the state which gives them life. Lastly, there was a change in the method of executing the commands of the central government. The Confederacy acted through the states. The Republic is authorized to act directly upon individuals. The difference then between the republic or a federal system and a nation must be sought not in the character of the powers exercised, but in the basis upon which they rest. It matters not how large the power of the federal government, if that power may be recalled by the states, the federal government is subordinate and they are sovereign. The federal government may have possession, the states have ownership, and they may at any time evict their tenant, or any one of the states may claim its share of the estate. Of the influence of Calhoun, there is no question. He was easily the first in rank among the theorists of his school, and his ideas dominated the South. His political theories became the dogma of the particularistic party. They were pressed with the most rigid and unyielding logic, and led straight to the trial of arms in the Civil War. After the close of this struggle, the theory of states' rights was again stated by such authorities as Jefferson Davis, Alexander H. Stevens, and Bernard J. Sage, but little was added to what had already been said by Calhoun. His doctrines still stand as the most perfect formulation of a particularistic idea which played so large a part in the first two generations of the life of the Republic. The nationalist theory of the Union, like the particularistic doctrine, did not develop immediately on the establishment of the Constitution. The first great champion of the cause was Daniel Webster, who contributed more to strengthening of Union sentiment than any other one man. Webster's theory, however, was constitutional in nature rather than philosophic. He attempted to show from the language of the Constitution itself, without much discussion of philosophic or historic considerations, that the Union was formed by a contract between individuals, which resulted in the establishment of a supreme law in government, and that the states as such were not concerned in this agreement. The people of the United States, he understood to mean the people of the whole Union and not of the several states. 
The union is not merely a compact between states to form a new confederacy, but an agreement between individuals to form a national government. It is established, said he, by the people of the United States. It does not say by the people of the several states. It is as all the people of the United States that they established the Constitution. Thus, the Constitution of the United States was formed just as any state constitution, namely, by means of an agreement between individuals. But a state constitution, although created originally by an agreement between individuals, was not regarded as a contract, but as a law. It was created by an agreement, but when that agreement was once made, there came into being a law proper. To use an analogy from private law, the agreement has become an executed contract. When the people agree to erect a government, said Webster, and actually erect it, the thing is done, and the agreement is at an end. The compact is executed, and the end designed by it is attained. The same argument was made by Story, who urged that a constitution falls under the definition of law as laid down by the eminent authority Blackstone. It is, said he, a rule of action prescribed by the supreme power in the state, regulating the rights and duties of the whole community. It is a rule as distinguished from a temporary or sudden order, permanent, uniform, and universal. It is also called a rule to distinguish it from a compact or agreement, for a contract is a promise proceeding from us. Law is a command directed to us. On this basis, it was denied that the Constitution of the United States could be regarded as a contract, and the assertion made that it must be considered as a law in the strict and proper sense of the term. It is in fact a supreme law of the land and carries with it the very highest degree of obligation. The Union is not a mere treaty relation which may be denounced at will, but an agreement as obligatory and indissoluble as a social contract on which the whole fabric of society rests. Hence, a state has no more right to question the authority and supremacy of the Constitution than a citizen of Massachusetts has to question the Constitution of that state. Not even as much right for the Constitution of the United States is the supreme law of whole society. The individual may exert the original right of revolution, but he has no legal right to resist the constituted authorities of the nation. Webster's doctrine was then that the Union is not a treaty relation between sovereign states, as Calhoun argued, or a contract between states by which the sovereignty of the contracting parties is diminished, as Madison contended, but it is a law resting on a social contract between individuals, and in which the states, as such, had no part. The Constitution is a government ordained and established by the people of the United States. In the expressive language of Webster, the Union is the association of the people under a constitutional government uniting their highest interests, cementing their present enjoyments, and blending in an indivisible mass all their hopes for the future. Although reasoning with great skill and eloquence from the strict letter of the Constitution, it is evident that Webster's real power did not come from his constitutional arguments as such. The very question over which he and Calhoun fought was whether the Union should be regarded and interpreted from the standpoint of constitutional law or of international law. If the states were never sovereign or had yielded up their sovereignty, then Webster's contention that secession is an unconstitutional act was valid. But to Calhoun, who looked upon the Union as, in ultimate analysis at least, a treaty between sovereign states, secession could not be regarded as unconstitutional, but at the worst as a breach of international law. The discussion as they carried it on amounted to an argument over the legality of an act, with one of the parties denying the existence of the law under which such validity was contested. Webster wished to make a purely legal argument on the question of legal sovereignty. Calhoun declined to make it purely a legal question, but at the same time disregarded the matter of fact. When we consider the social and economic forces on which political forms are based, Webster had the stronger position, and for this reason. Calhoun was continually looking backward to a state of things that once perhaps may have existed, and he failed to observe that every year was carrying him farther away from his premise. 
The fatal flaw in his argument was that even granting his cherished hypothesis that the states were originally sovereign, it did not follow that they would continue to possess that fullness of power forever. On the other hand, Webster's hypothesis was looking to the future tense, and every year of nationalizing conditions was therefore strengthening his contention. The great weight of his argument was due to the fact that even if his interpretation of we the people was denied, it did not follow that his conclusions were not sound. His power as a controversialist really came not from the strength of his constitutional arguments as such, but from the fact that he followed a great current of public sentiment springing from the impulsive nationality. He had with him the reasoned and unreasoned forces of an ethnic and geographic unity struggling towards self-expression. The political theory of the national school was not fully stated until the events of the Civil War had shown the strength of the Union sentiment. In this great struggle, the latent force of the national spirit was at last decisively manifested, and the nature of the American Union settled beyond question. At the close of the four years of war, there could be no uncertainty whether the United States should be ranked as a confederation or as a nation. There was perhaps room for question as to exact powers possessed respectively by central and by local governments, but the great problem of nationality was settled beyond dispute. This nationalist tendency was marked not only in the United States, but also in European countries, where similar unifying influences were at work. The struggles of the Hungarians, the Poles, the Greeks, the profound movements preceding the establishment of German and Italian national unity, all gave evidence of the vitality of the national principle in world politics. The right of each nationality to organization as a separate state was strongly emphasized. The doctrine of nationality was indeed the most conspicuous political dogma of the time. It is a significant fact that within one decade, three great peoples, the United States, Germany, and Italy, established by blood and iron the fact of their national unity. The nationalist theory in its later form differed materially from that advanced by Webster and his school. The doctrine was in the first place less strictly legal and constitutional in form. It contained a larger element of the philosophy that calls attention to the organic elements in the state and correspondingly less of the contract theory of the 18th century. And finally, it emphasized more strongly the unity and indivisibility of the sovereignty and consequently the wholly subordinate position of the states. In the first place, the form of the national argument was radically changed. Webster and his school had relied almost entirely upon legal and constitutional proofs that the United States is a nation. We the people of the United States, the supreme law of the land, the provisions concerning the general welfare and all necessary and proper powers, these were the foundations upon which the cause rested. The plain language of the Constitution, it was said, is amply sufficient to show the national character of that instrument. The Constitution was made the central figure in the discussion, strict adherence to its requirements was demanded, and argument was not carried beyond its boundaries. In the course of the war, however, this point of view changed. The stern necessities of that great conflict led to a certain disregard for strictly legal forms and provoked the expression of a determination to maintain the Union at whatever cost, while the whole war brought into view the unexpected strength of the Union sentiment. Although not abandoning the claim that the Constitution is a distinctly national instrument, the new school was not satisfied to rest with the literal and legal proof. They asserted that whatever the correct interpretation of the Constitution may be, the United States is and must be recognized as a nation. The argument was carried back of governmental forms, back of the written Constitution, so long a popular idol to the primary source of power, the creator of these forms, the American nation as it exists behind the Constitution. This idea was expressed by Lincoln when he made the assertion that measures otherwise unconstitutional might become lawful by becoming indispensable to the preservation of the Constitution through the preservation of the nation. Evidence of the same spirit is given by the statement of Fisher that if the union and the government cannot be saved out of this terrible shock of war constitutionally, a union and a government must be saved unconstitutionally. 
The fact that there is an unwritten constitution of the nation, in contrast to the written constitution of the government, was frequently pointed out. Jameson, for example, distinguished constitutions as organic growths from constitutions as instruments of evidence. The former are the product of various social and political forces, the latter the result of an attempt to express in technical language some particular constitution existing as an organic growth. Brownson distinguished between the constitution of the state or nation on the one hand and the constitution of the government on the other. The constitution of the nation, the congenital or providential constitution as it is variously termed, consists in the genius, the character, the habits, customs, and wants of the people. And upon this, the governmental constitution must rest if it is to operate successfully. Mulford distinguished between the historical and the enacted constitution, one the result of the nation's historical development, the other the formula prescribed for public order at any given time. Still more striking was the argument of Hurd, who took the ground that the effort to determine from the Constitution itself whether the states or the United States is sovereign is wholly futile, and must be so in the nature of the case. Sovereignty, said he, does not proceed from or depend upon Constitution or law, but itself makes Constitutions and laws. It is the creator, not the creature. Sovereignty is a matter of fact rather than of law, and hence it is to the facts we must look for an answer to the question. With this group of thinkers dominated by the spirit of nationality and influenced by the philosophy of such writer as de Maistre and Lieber, the tendency was to go back to the power that makes and unmakes constitutions. They were no longer satisfied to construe the language of a written document, but claimed the right to make an examination of the political, social, and economic forces which are the life and spirit of a state. They were no longer interpreters of law, but observers of the forces that make and unmake law. Among those entertaining such views, there was little question as to whether the sovereignty belonged to the individual states or to the Union. Judged by all the canons of distinction, the states could not be regarded as nations. This attribute must be reserved for the United States as a whole. The sovereignty was unhesitatingly attributed to the people of the nation. Back of all the states, said Jameson, and of all forms of government, for either the states or the Union, we are to conceive of the nation a political body, one and indivisible. Brownson thought that by the unwritten constitution, the sovereignty rests with the people as a whole or the collective body in the modified organic sense. Although by the written constitution, there is in fact no sovereignty. The governmental power is being divided between the local and the general governments. Mulford denounced the Confederate principle in the language of German transcendentalism and declared that the supreme power in the United States rested only in the nation at large and not in any commonwealth. On every hand, the supremacy of the Union was asserted in the strongest terms, and the dignity of the states disparaged. This was a legitimate conclusion from the great demonstration of strength exhibited in the maintenance of national authority and the preservation of the Union. Although the defenders of the Union agreed investing the sovereignty in the nation as contrasted with the individual states, there was not entire harmony of opinion as to what part the states occupied in the Union. On the one hand, it was held that the sovereignty of the United States is constituted regardless of and independent of the states. Thus, Jameson maintained that the nation is a political body, one and indivisible, made up of the citizens of the United States without distinction of age, sex, color, or condition of life. This is the ultimate source of political power, out of which all governmental authority flows. Generally and regularly, the sovereignty is exercised, it is true, through the groups called states, but back of these states there is a power by which they may be limited and restrained, namely the sovereignty of the nation. On the other hand, the necessity of recognizing the states as integral parts of the Union was not less strongly urged. Brownson, although defending the sovereignty of the nation, declared that the political or sovereign people of the United States existed as states, united, and only in this way. The sovereign nation was therefore the people as organized in states. 
the same end Heard contended for the recognition of the states united. The people, he declared, or the nation holding sovereignty as distinct from the states or the politically organized people of the states was not even a myth until the Civil War. The states alone were not sovereign, the people were not sovereign, but this attribute belonged exclusively to the states in union. This view seems to have also the sanction of the Supreme Court in its declaration. The states disunited might exist. Without the states in union, there could be no such political body as the United States. In this discussion, however, there is no claim that the individual states are sovereign. The issue is one as to how the national sovereignties were organized, whether it rests with the people or the whole nation, or with an association or group of states. The whole controversy really arises from a failure to distinguish clearly between the legal and the political side of sovereignty, a lesson which the events of the Civil War might have made clear. The new view of the Union differed in another respect from that of Webster, namely in regard to the genesis of the United States. Webster thought of the Union as formed in accordance with the political philosophy of the revolutionary era by means of a social contract between individuals. and in the new national school, the tendency was to disregard the doctrine of the social contract and to emphasize strongly the instinctive forces whose action and interaction produces a state. This distinction was developed by Lieber, who held that the great difference between people and nation lies in the fact that the latter possesses organic unity. People signifies merely the aggregate of the inhabitants of a territory without any additional idea, at least favorable idea. Nation, on the other hand, implies a homogeneous population inhabiting a coherent territory, a population having a common language, literature, institutions, and an organic unity with one another, as well as being conscious of a common destiny. In general, the New School thought of the Union as organic rather than contractual in nature. Though not in all cases clearly expressed, it was evident, nevertheless, that the contract philosophy was in general disrepute, and that the overwhelming tendency was to look upon the nation as an organic product, the result of an evolutionary process. It would, of course, be a gross exaggeration to say that all those who maintained the supremacy of the Union repudiated the social contract theory, but it is necessary to recognize the fact that the nation was something different in the popular mind and the philosophic mind from the people of earlier days. Nation carried with it the idea of an ethnic and geographic unity, constituted without the consent of any one in particular. People was understood to be a body formed by a contract between certain individuals. The very fact that the union was pinned together with bayonets was enough to show that the doctrine of voluntary contract had faded into the background. The general idea was that the United States, by virtue of the community of race, interests, and geographical location, ought to be and is a nation, and ought to be held together by force if no other means would avail. This was the feeling that underlay the great national movement of 1861 to 1865, and it could not fail to be reflected in the philosophy of that time and in the succeeding interpretations of that event. It is also to be observed that in the new school, the doctrine of sovereignty was subjected to important modification. In the contest over national supremacy, the idea of a divided sovereignty was laid aside and the unity and indivisibility of the supreme power strongly affirmed. As at an earlier time, Calhoun rejected the compromise doctrine, so now the nationalistic school abandoned the idea, declaring that the sovereignty is one and indivisible, and at the same time that it belonged to the nation. The idea of sovereignty was first strongly stated and clearly expounded by Lieber in his political ethics, and later received general support. In the narrower and legal sense, the rights of the states were admitted, but in respect to the ultimate political sovereignty, dispute practically came to an end. The events of the Civil War firmly established the fact that one and indivisible sovereignty belongs to the nation or the Union as a whole. Calhoun's idea of the nature of sovereignty was accepted, but it was applied in a manner wholly different from what he had expected or intended.
The nationalistic theory assumes its most complete and scientific form at the hands of J.W. Burgess. The concepts of nation, sovereignty, and the theory of the federal state are in his works clearly and definitely stated for almost the first time. Nation is defined as a population of an ethnic unity inhabiting a geographic unity, and the application of this is made to various nationalities. The national state is presented as the highest product of recent political development and is shown to be, for the present and discernible future, the organ of interpretation and last instance of the order of life for its subjects. The doctrine of sovereignty is also strongly stated. It is conceived as the original, absolute, unlimited, universal power over the individual subject and all associations of subjects, an essential quality of the state, indeed the most indispensable mark of statehood. Really, the state cannot be conceived, says Burgess, without sovereignty, i.e. without unlimited power over its subjects. That is its very essence. There is no other power, no association or organization, which can be conceived as limiting the state in its control over its subjects, for the authority which could exercise such power would itself be sovereign. It is true that the state may abuse its unlimited power and wrong the individual under its control, but the national state is, after all, the human organ least likely to go wrong. Moreover, this unlimited power on the part of the state necessitates no apology to civil liberty for its existence, since this very power is the real guarantee of and security for individual liberty, and hence the more completely and really sovereign the state is, the more secure is the liberty of the individual. From the principle that sovereignty is a unit, it follows that the so-called federal state is an impossibility. What seems such is either a number of sovereign states having an equal number of local governments and a common central government, or one sovereign state having a central government and several local governments. There may be a federal system of government in which the sovereign state allots certain powers to the central government and others to the local governments. But in this case, the sovereignty is in no way divided and there is no federal state. Sovereignty, it is urged, is entire or not at all, and what remains to the former states under such a system of government is only the residuary powers of government, which are by no means equivalent to sovereignty or any portion thereof. The sovereignty remains with the central state undivided and indivisible. Applying these principles to the United States, it is seen that the characteristics of a nation have been clearly evident here from the beginning, although not always accorded full recognition. The political system of the United States is a dual government, with the ultimate sovereignty resting in the nation. The nation has organized the central government, indicated a sphere of individual liberty, and given to the commonwealth residuary powers of government. The so-called states are not sovereign or semi-sovereign, but merely organs of government for the nation. It is no longer proper, says Burgess, to call them states at all. It is in fact only a title of honor without any corresponding substance. The commonwealths are, strictly speaking, neither sovereign nor states, and to call them either is inaccurate and misleading. Attention is called to the diminishing importance of the states in our political system, in contrast with the rapidly increasing power and influence of the modern city, and serious doubt is raised as to the ability of the state to hold its place as a unit of government in our political system if the influences operating during the last half century continue uninterrupted. The development of American political theory in relation to the nature of the Union may now be summarized as follows. At the time of the adoption of the Constitution, and for a considerable period thereafter, it was believed that the Union was of particular and anomalous character, and that the sovereignty so far as vested in government was divided between the states and the United States. The real sovereign was thought to be the people, but whether this meant the people of the United States as a whole or the people of the several states was left undetermined. As the contest between nationalism and states' rights became more acute, this middle position was abandoned by both parties. Calhoun contended that the sovereign people were the people of the several states and that the sovereignty was moreover essentially indivisible. The states were hence sovereign communities, and the general government had only the powers delegated to it by them. 
On the other hand, the nationalist position was defended by Webster, who declared that the Constitution was adopted by the people of the United States as a whole by means of an agreement as binding as the social contract. After the war had settled the vexed question of secession, the new school of nationalists developed and strengthened the earlier doctrine. The argument from the letter of the law was less emphasized, and the consideration of social and political facts made more conspicuous. The nation was declared supreme, but this differed from the earlier people in that the contract idea was largely eliminated, and the organic and evolutionary character of the nation given greater attention. Calhoun's doctrine of the indivisibility of sovereignty was accepted, but sovereignty was claimed for the Union to the exclusion of the states, which were relegated to the position of organs of the nation. Differences of opinion appeared as to the exact location of the sovereignty, whether with the nation as an aggregation of individuals or as an aggregation of states, but the sovereignty of the Union was undisputed. Looking back over the development of the United States, great growth in national spirit and sentiment is at once observed. In 1787, the general attitude toward the central government was that of suspicion and distrust, if not of open hostility. Liberty was regarded as local in character and the states as the great champions of the individual. The greater the power of the central government, the greater the danger to the freedom of the citizen. Consolidated government was considered as equivalent to tyranny and oppression. A century of national development has reversed that attitude. The states are now looked upon with more suspicion than is the national government, and it is frequently considered a matter of congratulation when a given subject falls under federal administration. It is no longer generally feared that human liberty is menaced by the federal government and protected only by the states. The enunciation of the United States as a consolidated fabric of aristocratical tyranny is seldom heard, but certain states are sometimes denominated as rotten boroughs. The state has, in fact, in many cases become a less important unit economically, politically, and socially than the city. And on the whole, the tendency of this time is overwhelmingly national, both in fact and in theory. End of chapter 7.